Hello and welcome to the World of Mouth podcast, where we share the stories of the world's best chefs and restaurateurs and their favorite destinations to travel and eat. My name is Kenneth Nars and I'm the creative director of World of Mouth, a platform that connects more than 600 restaurant experts who share their favorite restaurants from the best place for a pizza slice, taco or a hamburger to the latest must-visit new fine dining restaurant opening. Today we're meeting Will Goldfarb on the island of Bali in Indonesia where he runs Room for Dessert, a dessert bar focusing on local culture and produce. As one of the world's most renowned pastry chefs, he's worked in many of the most legendary restaurants in the world during the last 25 years, including El Bui in Spain and Tetsuya's in Sydney. He's also known from the Chef's Table series on Netflix. We'll hear about Will Golofarb's success and failures, and his career that took him from New York around the world to Bali. At the end of the podcast, he will reveal his favorite restaurant recommendations in Bali and the rest of the world. You'll also find these places in the World of Mouth app. So, uh, Will Goldfarb, uh, first question would be, uh, tell me, who is Will Goldfarb? Oh, wow. That's, I wish I knew. <laughs> That's I, I, I just had this conversation with my wife. I, uh, I was quoting Cary Grant, and well, Archibald Leach, and he said... One of my favorite quotes of all time, which is, uh, which is, who wouldn't want to be Cary Grant? I want to be Cary Grant. Uh, so I think whenever, whenever anyone asks me who, who I am, I would say, uh, you know, I wish I knew and I would like to find out. Um, but uh, in the real, in the, in the concrete, I'm, uh, well, I'm more of a hostess now, but I'm known to be a pastry chef. I have a small uh, dessert restaurant here in Ubud called Room for Dessert. Uh, we just opened our takeaway shop next door called The Powder Room. I'm working on a secret untitled project uh, to be determined in Singapore in the coming months and doing fun stuff uh, with Empirical and bringing over, uh, I don't know, all sorts of fun things. We've been running our academy now for three years here at Room for Dessert. And I would say the, the biggest part of what we do here in uh, Room for Dessert as we approach our 10th year in Ubud is to focus on our forest and returning the land from cultivated land into native forest. So if you had to think of me in one word, it would be muse of the forest. Okay, very good. Very That's good. three words, but you know, you get the idea. <laughs> yeah. And you're based, in, uh, you're based in, in Bali, of all places. That's right, in Ubud, yeah, in yeah. the cultural center of Bali. Uh, if we take uh, quite a few years back, um, you have a long career in all kinds of places in the world and restaurants as well. And uh, you've been featured in Netflix, in the, the, the Chef's Table series and uh, among other things. Uh, but tell me, if we go back to your childhood, where did it all start? Yes. Uh, well, I think, well, if we go all the way back, I think as the first child, I, I was probably always quite competitive as a, as a kid. Uh, but I, I've been interested in food uh, for a long time. My mom was a great cook, self-taught cook, really focused on bakery. Still, we use her cookie and brownie recipes here in uh, Room for Dessert. Um, but I, I mean, most of my relationship with food when I was young was I was always hungry. 
I was always starving. I mean, always absolutely starving. I used to pack two huge lunches for school, uh, go out for breakfast on the way to like sixth grade uh, and, and go out to eat after soccer practice or tennis, you know, like the normal uh, suburban privileged lifestyle. Uh, and I was always eating all the time. In fact, similar to now, I, I feel like my whole life I've been always hungry. So it's and been, this a, was, it's been was an exciting this? This adventure. This was in New York or? In New York, that's yeah, that's right. In New York, uh, but I, I will say my restaurant life started uh, probably when I was about fourteen or fifteen. I started working. I mean, I needed money, like everyone, so I started to work uh, as a valet in a country club, uh, parking cars. So that was my first hospitality experience. Was as a destroyer of fine sports vehicles uh, because I wasn't very good with a clutch. And these were really fancy. I think back in the day, what was the new car? Like the Acura NSX, kind of like the race car style 30, 40 years ago. Uh, and I was driving really, really fancy sports cars uh, and stripping the gears uh, dramatically uh, well, after the guests would go inside to play golf. Um, so that was my kind of introduction to hospitality. This, this doesn't sound like earning money. It's like losing money, or? Well, I, I rarely got caught because the people who dropped their cars were already inside golfing. Uh, okay. So, yeah, and then I would, we, we, did a lot of, we did a lot of gambling in the car shack, in the driver's shack. So, you know, like, uh, what's the movie, Caddyshack? But this was more for the valets. So we used to sit around and play cards because none of us made very much money. But if you could win everybody's money, <laughs> then you could do okay. <laughs> so that was, our, that was my uh, high school summers. Uh, and that kind of evolved to a busboy and then a food runner. And, you know, if you work in restaurants, you kind of move up the chain if you want to make more. I, learned, I bartended, uh, host. I was an awful, awful waiter. Uh, and then, you know, if you spend enough time in restaurants, you, you need to or you hopefully want to get an interest in food and wine. Um, and that is what led to my interest in cooking, actually, was from learning about food for serving it. Um, so the first... Uh, Yeah, I mean, until I was 21, I never cooked. I'd only worked uh, six or eight years in service. And then I started cooking uh, my senior year of college. The first steps, uh, that was still in the U.S. And when did you uh, go abroad the first time? Uh, I went abroad in 1997. So right when I finished university, I was looking for a... I was looking for a break, so I signed up for a pastry class in Paris um, for three weeks, like a very intensive introduction to pastry at Cordon Bleu, and basically that was just supposed to be my summer break. Uh, but that turned into I visited, and then you know, sort of this pastry chef wanted to take a holiday, so I covered for him in this bistro off the Champs Elysees uh, within about two weeks of arriving in Paris, even though I'd never cooked before, didn't speak a word of French and had never worked in the pastry department. But I thought that I could do it. I don't know if that's a false ego or just foolishness, but I, uh, and I, of course he threw me out immediately when he came back from his holiday, but, uh, but I, I was able to hold down the position for a week, uh, which was kind of my first uh, introduction to real restaurants. Uh, in uh, yeah, that was summer '97. So, pretty much doing the same thing now. Uh, Thirty now, what's that? Twenty, twenty-seven years later, uh, still okay. basically doing the same thing, just trying not to get thrown out of a kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so after Paris, uh, which uh, where did it lead from? From there. 
Well, I was in Paris. I was studying and I was working for a family as well. I, I worked in a bistro and then I worked in a pastry shop and then I worked for a family. And I got a gig uh, working in the south of France for the summer. But actually at the time I was supposed to be planning my return to go to law school. But I called the dean and said, forget it, I've got too many options. You know, I'm here in Paris, it's pretty great. Uh, so I ended up in the summer in Saint-Tropez, but I'd already secured a job in Florence. Uh, so I wanted to work at this trattoria called Cibreo. So still, I mean, the best tasting yeah. food that I've ever had. Uh, kind of leg legendary, legendary place. Uh, very specific, very Tuscan. Uh, and really, like, still the best flavor food that I've ever had. So I was there for six months. And during that time, I mean, you know, I was on the road a bit and getting getting bounced around a bit by, uh, you know, being a foreigner from New York in Rome, uh, or sorry, in Florence. And I, you know, I was chopping a lot of red onions. I mean, that was my job every day was about 20 to 40 kg, two big bags of red onion to, to puree by hand, uh, because we weren't allowed to use the cuisinart or the robo. Uh, so... After six months, I was basically thinking, you know, like, and you're not really allowed to touch the food, right? As a, there's one sous chef. In fact, I went back with my daughter uh, two years ago, and it was the same sous chef uh, from 1998. So cool. 25 years. He left actually last year. His name's Giorgio, but this guy didn't let anybody touch the food for 25 years. It's amazing. He was an absolute legend. So, uh, but we, but so I got a chance. There was an immigration raid on the kitchen, and and uh, there was an immigration raid on the kitchen. The the I had to hide in the office, which was next to my apartment. And I I picked up the phone on the fax machine and called over to El Bulli, which was the which was the well at the time was just received its third star. It had not ever been covered in the English press or, well, English language press, except for one article in the International Herald Tribune. Uh, and it was still known as like the foam guy, uh, or frankly, I mean, it was also known from Robuchon who, I mean, Robuchon announced basically they were the new best restaurant in the world after he retired. Uh, but that's sort of the context of me moving to Europe is right at that moment in world cuisine going from Robuchon to, to Ferran. I mean, we're still basically in that moment, you know, the, the child of that moment now, or maybe the next one, but we'll see. Uh, but we, but so I had found the book in Paris and I was, I had asked to work there two or three times uh, and they, I'd been politely declined. And then this one day, I think they were celebrating the last day of the season, 1998. And they said, yeah, sure, come next year. Uh, so I packed up and drove uh, to Nice to drop my car off. And I went home to New York to make some money doing parties for the holiday season. So I would have enough money for Europe for the next year. And then, yeah, spring of around February 99, I went back to Barcelona to do parties in the, the old catering and the workshop were in the aquarium. It was before they had the Porta Ferisa tire. Uh, and so I did catering in all the Gaudi houses. And then I drove uh, up the coast to open the restaurant for the season, uh, which was yeah pretty spectacular. Nineteen ninety nine. So how I mean, so uh, it was El a good start to my career. Yeah, uh, El Boy. For those who don't know, I mean that was that was the groundbreaking restaurant for almost twenty years, wasn't that? Uh, even more, um, close. I'd say even yeah, yeah. I think it's closed about ten years ago. Um, in in north of, of Barcelona yeah. with with the, the Adria brothers, uh, 
you, for how long did you stay That's there right. and, and was that the pastry section? Uh, I was in the pastry section uh, for the, for a year and then I worked in the test kitchen for a few months before the season of 2020. But at that point I went to, sorry, 2000. Uh, at that point I went to Australia actually to keep looking, keep, keep wandering, looking for magic. So yeah, a year and a bit, but again, just yeah. as a stagiaire in pastry and uh, yeah, but uh, it was a great formative experience for me. So. What was the, uh, what, I mean, what did you, uh, looking now back at it, what, what was the, the most important things that you actually learned during that, that year? Uh, I mean, it's hard to say. I think, I think it'll believe, it's ironic. I think sometimes it's underrated by certain people and overrated by others. I think the, it's an, it's, I mean, you, if you look at the last 30 years, I mean, it's inconceivable without their role. I mean, if you look at the restaurants, even even if you look at 20 years of Noma, you know, uh, Rene, it was actually the year, I think Rene was the year of 2000 in El Bulli. Uh, so, and I, and I, I think I received, anyway, it's, so basically everyone who we know as like the, let's say, whatever we want to call this uh, part of cooking passed through there over the, even over just the summer that I was there, let alone over the last 20 years. I mean, Massimo was a stage in pastry for a few days. Uh, when when Osteria was a one star, you know, Gagnier used to come for lunch or Pierre Hermé. Or, I mean, basically every chef in the world was either cooking there or eating there uh, every day, uh, even before it was well known uh, to the public. But I mean, basically, the idea of uh, writing your own rules, I think people understand that. And perhaps it's been over, let's say, overly liberal in the sense that anyone can write their own rules. But I think their point was quite the opposite. It was if you're methodical about your techniques and your ingredients, your process and your discipline, yes, then you have the freedom to be creative. It wasn't about having a blank check to be creative. It was a very rigorous process. And actually, this idea of like uh, restaurants being uh, responsible for creative process, I mean, that didn't exist at the time. And now if you don't have a lab or a research space or R&D, you're in the minority in a high-end restaurant. So at the time, that was there was nothing. There was not even a single one. There was no collaboration between, well, excuse me, let me, let me not broad, paint too broad a brushstroke. There had been significant collaboration between fine dining and industry in France. For example, Robichon doing sous vide potatoes uh, is the, the best example. Or, but I think this idea that you're supposed to collaborate with scientists, with industrial designers, with artists as like a routine part of your work. I mean, there's no question that did not exist. Um, I think the idea of flavor, texture, temperature, as ingredients, you know, like where texture and temperature are just as important as flavor. I, I still think that's pretty critical. Uh, and I do think the discipline is underrated as a kind of primary category. Like if you look at, I think this week, uh, the guys uh, Disfrutar just got their third star. I mean, if you go to the pass there, I mean, you still see those three guys on the pass every day. Like that's, that's where they are. They live there. I mean, they live on the pass. Um, and that's something that I think is underrated these days, especially with like, I hate this term, but let's say celebrity chefs and everybody has a new opening somewhere else and another restaurant to take care of. And so you never really know who's there. I mean, I can tell you for sure every service for was on the pass, 100%, without not, not miss one service in the whole year. 
Uh, and I mean, if you, you see that in the legacy of guys like Matteo or Joel Edward, because they, like, they're always there. They're always on the line. They're always checking the quality. They're always checking the flavor. They're always checking the product. I think that rigor and discipline is underrated. Uh, and also the, the desire for freshness, I think, has been underrated because it's been, you know, over-focused maybe on some of the more technical fireworks. And very understandably, but I mean, again, we used to pick eucalyptus in the parking lot uh, for the truffles. You know, it wasn't called foraging then. It was just uh, picking. Uh, it wasn't a branded experience at the time. But I think this concept of being relevant to your region... Uh, and again, they didn't, I mean, Elbuli didn't invent regional cuisine, but it gave an opportunity for people to reinterpret regional cuisine. And as a result, you've seen all over the world from whether from Noma to Central, let's call it the last 20 years, right? You've seen people feeling empowered to uh, reinterpret their local cuisine in a meaningful way uh, by focusing on the products and stories of their regions. And I think that's opening it up again, hopefully to more diverse stories. But that's trend. I mean, th that's really a signature hallmark, I think, of El Bulli in a way that traditional fine dining was meant to kind of erase that identity and make it uniform, right? That's the Escoffier system, is erase identity to, in the sake of uniformity uh, so that you can have the same sauce prepared by any cook anywhere in the world, right? That's the, I mean, that is literally the foundation for, for the 20th century of French cooking. And you found artists who expressed themselves in their terroir, but still within the confines of that system. And I think this was a way of shaking that system a bit and saying, like, we put our regional identity first and then we write the rules for the cooking that follows. Um, and all I would say is I think the rigor, the, the, the discipline and rigor and habit that they used to follow that is really uh, not frequently talked about enough as kind of like critical to the identity. Showing up every day, working endlessly until something is done and making something over and over again until it's the best you can make it. I mean, hundreds of times, thousands of times, not like one, two or three times. Uh, I think that's something that's really hard for people to understand uh, without seeing it. And I think it's very it's been very influential. And I think you've seen it. The result of people who spent time there have been able to express themselves in new ways. And if they've had the rigor and discipline to go along with the talent they you know you're seeing these people really last you know it's not like these are flash in the pan chefs uh making foams right these are serious guys these are serious guys that have been i mean albert was just picked as the chef of, you know like this is a serious guy albert was the the pastry chef i mean he's he's one of the best chefs in the world i mean these are this is not like a casual crew thrown together um, this is, these are serious guys and they gave everything. I mean, these guys moved into bunk beds in, next to the dorm rooms for the season there for a year. I mean, that's, if you think about that in the context now of like someone of Albert's level, like bunking up next to the, for the year, I mean, that's unheard of nowadays in a, in this like luxury restaurant setting. So I think that level of commitment is hard to, is hard to understand, uh, because it's not always the part that's publicized. Yeah. 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 Sorry if that's a bit of a long a long answer to your to your question, but no, no, uh, those no. are the things that really stuck with me. Yeah. Like like I said, for me, Albert is a reference point. Period. So he's not. I mean, not just Ferran. I mean, Albert and Julie were reference points. Let alone, I mean, Ruben Garcia. These guys are legendary guys. Matteo Oriol. Uh, I mean, these are these are like great chefs. They're not just casual guys. But even even. I went to a restaurant last week, a Victor Quintilla. It's outside of Barcelona, about 40 minutes. 
uh, he's got he's got a gorgeous restaurant and bar. Uh, Mari and Marti of a place called Cala Maria in Girona. I mean, you're talking about like a whole region of chefs. Um, Rafa Pena, you know, at uh, Gresca. I mean, these are like serious guys who produce serious, serious food, uh, with or without the cameras there. Uh, and they're and they give everything they've got on every plate. So I, I don't know. I really admire that approach, and I hope to live up to that kind of standard. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so life post El Bui. Uh, then you said uh, Sydney. Yeah, I was in Adelaide actually. Then I was in Sydney, and I mean, I was in Adelaide uh, at the time. Chong Lu was the sort of top chef down under before Tetsuya came into the picture. I went over to. I took a bus. I was working on a construction site. I, I mean, it's yeah, it's been a lot. I could spend an hour just talking about that drive, but it's been a. It was a good adventure in Australia. Good moment to see Tetsuya. I saw him a few weeks ago, maybe twenty twenty some years later. Still exactly the same. So, still hustling, still opening restaurants. You know, still in Marina Bay Sands in Singapore. I mean, the guy's. Uh, he never stops working. Still, so. I mean, those were other two great uh, people that I didn't spend as much time with, but that were really kind of iconic people. So if we then take a few uh, more years, uh, how did you end up in, in Bali? Uh, my wife wanted to move here. So about 15 years ago. And uh, what, what were your... So it was, easy. it was easier to say yes. Yeah. Uh, and your thoughts on uh, yeah. being a restaurateur or chef in Bali? What, what plans did you have? Uh, I mean, I'm not sure. My, I mean, basically, I wanted to reopen after New York. Uh, but, but I really... It took us a minute to get to Bali. It took us a minute to, be, to reopen. But... Now we're about to celebrate our 10th anniversary, so it's been pretty extraordinary uh, period, actually. Uh, you mentioned New York. Yeah, you, I'm not you sure actually, I recommend you, it, but it's... You, you had a restaurant yeah. in New York. Uh, so before Bali, you also had a restaurant in New York. Yes, that's right. I had a room for dessert in New York, 2005, 6, 7. Yep. And that, how did that end? Uh, poorly. <laughs> not by design not by total design but uh, <laughs> I think what's the Hemingway quote you know how did you go bankrupt it was gradually and then suddenly uh, so uh, New York it wasn't a bankrupt issue it was a it was a I mean we just disagreed about I, I thought I was buying out my partners and I think they agreed and then they disagreed and it was just it was just a classic like foolish young person's mess to not be able to extract and you know I hopefully I learned from that and I haven't you know I've been able to compose myself a bit better in those kind of situations but I mean luckily I, I mean I think we ended up in the right place so I'm really happy about that so uh, tell me a few words about uh, your place now in in uh, in Ubud in in Bali um, you mentioned already something about it but it's basically a restaurant serving focusing on desserts Yes, that's right. We're, I mean, we are a dessert restaurant. So we have uh, one menu, it's 15 courses. Uh, we start with five savory in the, in the terrace and then, we, and then we move inside for five desserts and we move out to the garden for petty fours. Uh, so you move through our permaculture garden, through our Miyawaki forest, through our three dining rooms, uh, savory and sweet, kind of two to one sweet instead of two to one savory, like a normal restaurant. Uh, and then yeah, I mean, that's really what we do. We've got a great natural wine pairing now. We've got amazing cocktails with spirits from all over. Um, 
I mean, we're actually making a lot of spirits now. We're working as well with our friends from Empirical. We've been able to bring them over to Bali. So we really just try to showcase the things that we grow uh, and work with the botanical and medicinal plants that we grow around the restaurant. Um, and as we try to sort of move towards more sustainable ecosystem uh, for in every way, for our staff, for their careers, uh, for the land and for the community. Which uh, I get this so might be a hard question a but uh, to answer, but any... What, what what group of ingredients or what would be your favorite like produce in Bali? There's plenty, but what would that be? Oh wow, wow, that's a tough one. I mean, there's so many, uh, but I would say things we like to keep it simple. Like we're very, I mean, we grow a lot. I love rosella. I love turmeric. Uh, I love French penny flowers. I love cat whiskers. I love, I mean, we love all of these things here, uh, lime leaves, mangosteen, soursop, um, but also the basics, you know, we have the best salt, sugar, coffee, and cacao, I think, anywhere. So I'm, I'm obsessed with coconuts. I mean, basically everything here is just so great. Passion fruit, baby star fruit, uh, just endless. We could, we could spend all day just talking about that. But the larder is amazing. The finesse and the traditional healing herbs but especially the kind of what we call the foundation of pastry, right? Salt and sugar, coffee, chocolate. Those are pretty rare to have locally. Spices as well. Fresh nutmeg, probably the coolest thing ever. The actual fruit. Cacao pulp. I mean, these are just like very, very special things. Mangosteen. Uh, they're just special things that are like you just can't resist if you get a chance to try them. In the next part of the podcast, we'll hear Chef Will Golofarb's favorite restaurant recommendations in Bali and the rest of the world. As you're based in Bali, let's talk about a bit about uh, restaurants and eating out there. Um, so tell me, any, any, any? Uh, could you uh, name a few favorites uh, that you go to uh, on Bali? Old, new places, uh, street food. Or something else? Yes. Yeah, of course. I mean, our first stop for uh, suckling pig is Panda Eggy. Um, that's a special, special place. Uh, so it's like they say here, you know, there are warangs and that there are warangs. And like Panda Eggy, like that's a warang. I mean, they do a thousand, two thousand people a day. They have their roasting pig every hour. So you have nothing's ever even sat there for an hour. Uh, it's pretty extraordinary. Um, And it's really special, worth a visit. There is a priest in the north called Jero Yudi who runs cooking classes. So the restaurant is really only open if you take a class. Uh, but I think he's a spectacular chef who works with local seafood. Um, and he's just a really amazing guy. He distills uh, arak he, from coconut sugar, which he makes himself from the trees that he grows and harvests the salt 100 meters in front of his house for the salt that we use. So. He's a super special guy, and that's not really a restaurant, but as a food destination, it's kind of a can't miss. Um, I like Mason in Changu uh, because I think it's super fun. Uh, Pika in Ubud, uh, the Locavore guys are opening a new place, but I think everyone will, will already have that on their radar. Um, the, I'm trying to think what else. There's amazing coffee shops, Seniman, S-C-N-I-M-A-N. Um, there's so many great places in Bali that we could, that we could steer you to. I always uh, started started room for dessert and work your way up. 
Yeah. Any, any, uh, a few more like local places, be it like uh, you named the, the, sure. the Bobby Guling thing, any, anything else like super local, simple? Yeah. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, I love uh, I Am Batutu from Pak Sanur. Uh, Pak Sanur is based in Ubud. I Am Batutu is really outstanding. There's also, well, there's another, Bu Rama is another I Am Batutu place that's sprinkled all over the island. There is a snail satay place around the corner from where I live called Satay Kakul. It's really outstanding. Uh, those are those are worth a visit. Those are those are all absolutely outstanding. First snail satay and banana heart soup. Can't miss it. So snail satay is basically uh, what it sounds like. That's just what it sounds like. Snails on so, a stick. Snails on a stick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And what was the snails name of that on one? Snails on a stick. That's what it sounds like. Uh, Sate Kakul, Sate Snail. Uh, then, I mean, uh, you travel obviously quite a lot as well. Um, any favorites in, in, in other places of Asia or Europe or US? Oh, wow. There's so many. There's so many great restaurants. I'm trying to think where I went most recently. Um, I love Burnt Ends in Singapore. I think it's extraordinary. Uh, I can never get tired of going there. Uh, I always want to go to Effervescence in Tokyo. What's What's great about Burnt Ends? Oh, everything. I mean, the food is just so... Dave's food is so direct and powerful and flavorful, fresh, bright. It's just everything about it. It's super casual, super fun. And yep. uh, yeah, it's really enjoyable. Um, I really like, I really love what he's doing there, but there, there's so many great restaurants. The best place we've eaten at lately in Singapore is Lola, L-O-L-L-A. That's Johan C. Uh, she's getting a lot of attention now. Her food is spectacular, super delicious, very yummy. Not at all your normal, boring tasting menu food. Um, in Barcelona, I love Haddock, H-A-D-D-O-C-K. It's an old chef of... Uh, Uh, from Santi Maria, who does like old school Catalan food, you can go for uh, Escudella, like big casseroles of soup. I mean, it's just a really extraordinary place worth a visit. He's a real character. Um, he dress. He's like uh, the pirate in Tintin. I mean, that's like it's it's amazing. I mean, the guy is really like he's a he's a. That's a place where you go and eat like what he wants to eat. Yeah, I went to a place last week, which I don't want to spoil. Uh, a Basque place called Maitea. M-A-I-T-E-A, which has probably the best wines I've tasted that I can remember. Extraordinary. In this classic Basque tavern in Barcelona. Um, Copenhagen, I'd love to get back to Coan. I think that's an extraordinary restaurant. I think Christian's really amazing. Um, I'm trying to think. I really enjoyed, I was in Edinburgh recently at Palmerston. I thought that was absolutely fantastic. What kind uh, of place? I really, really enjoyed my meal there. What kind of restaurant? Yeah. Uh, like, a, I don't know, like a, like a, just a sort of upscale neighborhood wine bar. I mean, it was really just delicious food at the counter and really felt like you were in Scotland, like in the best way. Everything was really, it was really worth a visit. Super packed, super buzzy, great feeling, great vibe, super warm service. Um, I really enjoyed it. Went to, uh, I had a great uh, meal at Little French in Bristol like the best Mexican food that I've had uh, outside of the States uh, for a while um, at a place called Barrio Comida in Durham, England. I mean, the middle of absolutely nowhere. Uh, on a corner in the middle of nowhere, 
uh, when I was going to visit a school interview and it was like hand ground tortillas. I, I mean, we were just like, we couldn't even believe that we were being served this. Uh, it was so, so good. And I just, I don't even know like how the hell these guys ended up where they ended up or who, I don't, they must really have a love for Mexico. It's, it's just hard to explain. It's such a specific flavor and it was such a random place. Um, were they Mexicans? It was just so delicious. Like, were they Mexicans? Uh, no, but they were definitely people who loved Mexican food. I would not say it's a traditional Mexican restaurant, and nor would I say it's people, let's say, ripping it off. This was like serious Mexican cooking. Either there must have been, it must have been people who spent time there, really loved it, or really appreciated it because they reflected it really correctly. Um, it was really, really outstanding. Um, like really notable. Uh, and surprising. Um, and then my favorite place in New York, I had a really good meal at Coleman. Uh, at oh, yeah. Uh, which is a sort of... Coleman was really excellent, especially the the pastries. Uh, the, I mean, the food is excellent, but the pastries were like really notable, notably distinct and fresh and excellent. And, it's like uh, a and big... then our favorite place for... It's sort of Coleman. It's like a big uh, bistro or brasserie style or fine. Yeah, it's yeah. It, I mean, it's a little finer than a bistro or brasserie, yep. but I, it's warm like a bistro or brasserie. But the cooking is outstanding. The pastry is extraordinarily strong. Uh, the product is really good quality. It's like a real proper buzzy New York restaurant. Um, and then our favorite place is Pio Pio, which is our like Peruvian chicken joint. Um, which still had the best avocados of the trip and the best sauce and the best chicken. So I, we went there three times. Uh, but it's, uh, I don't know, we, I, love to, I still love to eat. I'm always looking for food uh, everywhere, actually. So it's, uh, I mean, I was excited about lunch today. So I'm lucky we have a great staff meal here at Room for Dessert. One last question, I'll let you go. Um, if you would, yes, could sure, sure. Uh, once more, again, you just came back, uh, but if you could pack your bags tonight and with your wife go anywhere in the world to any restaurant uh, and eat, uh, which uh, place could that possibly be? Wow, that's so tough. Anywhere in the world? Yep. Uh, I mean, I can do a couple. I, I would love to go to Echabari. Uh I would also love to go to the Rinky Dink. Is it still it's still winter, right? So I love our neighborhood place. If I had to go somewhere right now for lunch, I would go with my wife to Cal Boter in Gracia, which is like our lunch spot, uh, because I love uh, going there with her for lunch. Uh, and if I had to pick a destination, wow, there's just so many great places, and there's I mean it's endless. I could I, I I'd love to go. I mean, I, I, I'm just, I couldn't even think of where I wouldn't want to go with her right now. There's so many amazing places. I'd love to go to Paris. I'd love to go to Shelter Island. Uh, I'd love to go to Tokyo to Effervescence. I'd love to go to Biragura to go to Bray. Um, I'd love to go, well, I'd love to go to Singapore and go to, you know, <laughs> go to see what, what, we're, what we're up to there. Um, I'd love to get back to Morocco, uh, like Essaouira, Marrakech. Uh, Chebreo in Florence is always great, but also there's some gems in other places in other parts of uh, Italy that are really worth a visit. I think there's one place uh, in Ponza, 
called the like ship you know the sailors refuge like refugio de navegante but i think it's out of season right now um or my favorite i guess no so then i can tell you exactly where i would go so if i could go to one place with my wife in the world right now i would go to la marina in calafeola ponza that's my first choice i'm revising all previous first choices okay um that is just <laughs> the that? best that's my official best. They only have one dish. It's like fish with pasta or pasta with fish. Uh, wines on the table, uh, whatever they have. The staff drink what's left. Uh, it's the perfect restaurant. They cook in seawater. Uh, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, there's one dish on the menu. It's absolutely perfect. Flawless. Cannot be improved as a dining experience. Okay. <laughs> Great. Wow, that's good. That's good. Okay, uh, we'll go to farm uh, in uh, for room for room for dessert in uh, Ubud, Bali. Thank you so much for this. Really enjoyed talking to you, and uh, good luck with all your new projects there. Okay, great. So I would just say thanks to World of Mouth for being the only guide worth looking at. Thank you for listening to the World of Mouth podcast with Chef Will Goldfarb from restaurant Room for Dessert in Bali, Indonesia. You'll find all the recommendations mentioned in this episode and more in the World of Mouth app, available in your app store, or visit our website at worldofmouth.app. You'll also find these places in our podcast notes. I'm Kenneth Nars. Until next week, when we meet Chef Vaughn Mabee from restaurant Amisfield in New Zealand. <laughs>